Let's pray for a moment, please. Lord, thank you this morning. We pray that that all interference and confusion would be removed from this space. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you come and you open our minds and open our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you fill my words. And we pray most especially that you would open the scripture to us. That in seeing them, we might see Jesus. And in seeing Jesus, we might be saved. We pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. God can save anyone and use them for his purpose in the world. God can save absolutely anyone and use them for God's purpose in the world. I know this because 33 years ago, this coming Tuesday, God totally disrupted my life, rescued me when I wasn't really looking for him, but I was in desperate need of him. As I was standing on the 35-yard line of Washington's RFK Stadium in the middle of a Grateful Dead concert, and God walked me out of that concert and put me on my knees in the parking lot. And when I got up from my prayer, I was different. And I knew Jesus was Lord. God can save anybody and use them for his purpose in this world. That's the message of Acts chapter 9 and the story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus from a murderous persecutor of the church to being an apostle who wrote most of the New Testament and was the first missionary church planter and really one of the greatest Christians who has ever lived. Let's take a look at the text from Acts 9 this morning. If you want to take out your scripture sheet, we'll look at a few verses and I'll refer to a few others. It might be on the screens as well. We'll start at verse 1 and see what the text might show us today. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Saul was intent on destroying the church. And we saw this beginning a couple of weeks ago when we were in Acts chapter 7, and then it proceeded into Acts chapter 8 as he started out sort of his introduction in the scriptures and to us overseeing the martyrdom of Stephen, right? The first Christian killed for faith in Jesus Christ. And it says that Paul went about ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. It's like something out of a movie, really. Saul kicking in the doors of houses in the middle of dinner and dragging out people from their table where they're seated to take them off to jail, both men and women, it says, which means that he was disrupting families. He was leaving children orphaned because he was so filled with hatred and a desire to destroy this emerging way, this emerging church. Paul hated it, and he went about doing everything that he could to destroy it. 
And now where we are in our text in Acts chapter 9, he's on his way to Damascus. He's received letters from the chief priest authorizing him to go into Damascus to the synagogues and arrest and basically extradite any of the Jewish people who have fallen in with the way who have begin, begun to follow this Jesus whom Paul was so angry about. And so he's journeying. He's headed to Damascus. It's about 130, 40 miles from Jerusalem. He's got a group of thugs around him, right? He's going to take out anyone who's part of the way. Did you notice that language? That's what Christianity was originally called, the way really based out of what Jesus said about himself in John chapter 14, verse six, Jesus said, I am the way I am the way and I am the life and I am the truth. And no one will ever get to God unless they come through me. So it was called the way. And Paul was infuriated because of course, Paul was a self-confident man. He was self-assured. He was self-made maybe like some of you, a self-made person. He came from the right family. He came from the right credentials. He had been to the right schools. He had gotten the right training. He had the right religious background and he worked hard and he advanced up the ranks beyond his peers. He was confident before people and he was confident in himself before God. But there was an image, I think, that was seared into Paul's mind, and and that's what was causing so much of the rage, so much of the destruction that he was bringing about. And the image, I, I believe, was the image of the death of Stephen. Paul oversaw Stephen's death, and it wasn't so much the grotesqueness of a man being killed by having rocks thrown at him until he was dead, but it was the way in which Stephen died, not crying out for mercy, not threatening his accusers, but with a face like an angel, Stephen looked up into heaven and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against them. And I think it was the image of a man facing death, a brutal death and speaking forgiveness over his murderers that was seared into Paul's mind. And Paul was doing everything he possibly could, Saul, to get it out of his brain. Verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, Saul approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, don't miss this. Everything about Saul's salvation, everything about Saul's conversion was God's doing and not Saul's. Saul didn't contribute anything to what happened that day on the road. I mean, think about it. The light that shines out of heaven, which will be described later on in the book of Acts as a light brighter than the sun itself. 
at noonday in Israel. That's pretty bright, by the way. I've been there. That light that shone around him and stopped him in his tracks was from God. The power that put him on his knees and blinded him for three days was God. The loving and kind conviction that came to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, was from God. And the voice that spoke to him, revealing the Savior's identity, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, was from God. And the new life that entered into him, when you hear those words, rise and go, was from God. And it's interesting when you look at the Greek of that word rise, it's the same word that was used of Jesus being raised from the dead. It's a resurrection word, rise. It's an Easter word, rise. It's a new beginning kind of word, rise. It's, it's a new chapter kind of word. It's things are going to be different kind of word. Rise, get up. Something new is about to begin. And go into the city and you'll be told what you are to do. All of that was from God. Saul's part was simply to respond and to do what the voice told him to do. And that's really good news for you and for me. Because if Saul's conversion, Saul's salvation was God's doing, and Saul had nothing to contribute to it, then you and I can be saved, can be converted, and it's not dependent upon us. And that is really good news, unless you're a self-righteous Pharisee, in which case you'll want nothing to do with it, because you're confident of yourself before people, and you're confident of yourself before God. And I think that's the only person God can't save. And yet, Saul, Saul was converted. So perhaps there's hope for you too. Need to see that salvation is always God's doing. It's always the work of Jesus Christ. It's always the activity of God in our lives. Out of his sheer mercy, because he doesn't want the death of any sinner, because he doesn't want us separated from him for all of eternity, and that's the condition we are born in, separate from God, apart from God, born not into life, but into death, because of sins, because of trespasses, That's the condition, the status that we belong to until God rescues us out of that condition. Salvation is 100% of God's doing. It is by grace and grace alone that you are saved. It's not what you do. It's what he has done for you through the death of Jesus on the cross and through his resurrection from the dead. A.W. Tozer said, grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits on the undeserving. Now let's put that in everyday language. Grace is God's willing kindness toward you. Flat out. Not because you earn it or deserve it, but because that's who God is. And because you mean that much to him. His kindness and his willingness to move toward you before you ever move toward him. This is grace. This is our God. This is the true God. This is the God who comes after sinners and who's done everything to make us his own. 
And we live in an age, as Peter told us in Acts chapter 2, when all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you received his salvation? Have you truly, in your heart of hearts, received the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be made new and brought into the very family of God, taken out of nothingness and put into somethingness? taken out of your existence alone and brought to be part of God's family forever and ever, never to be removed, never to be forsaken, never to be lost, always his. Now, here's the thing. This is really good news. It doesn't matter so much how salvation occurs, for, for a person, but that it occurs. And what I mean is this. We're not all going to have conversion experiences like Paul, Saul. He became Paul on the road to Damascus. Not everybody gets called out of a Grateful Dead concert. Doesn't work that way. The question is, has it happened in your life? Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be reborn by God's spirit that he gives to those whom he gives it to. Has that happened for you in your life? Do you know you're physically alive right now? Anybody? Good. Just checking. Then you also ought to know if you're spiritually alive. And if you're not sure, then let's talk about it. Because you can. You know, I talked to a man a few weeks ago. Been in the church his whole life. Baptized as a baby, raised in the church, faithful, had no idea if he was saved. I asked him, is Jesus real to you? Are you saved? He couldn't answer me. And, and it, you know, he was honest at least about it. Most of the time we put on a church face and we fake it. But this guy was honest and he said, I have no idea. And I said, well, I, I can help you find out. And he said, really? I said, oh, it's very easy. Well, he said, well, tell me. I said, well, do you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead? And you really believe that? Like, it's not just words, but like in your heart of hearts, you actually really believe that. Like if you were put on trial and somebody said, I'm going to kill you. Do you believe that? Yes, I do believe that. I said, well, you're saved. He said, what? He said, I believe that my whole life. I said, you've been saved for a really long time. But he had no idea. Now, this guy was in his 40s. That's a really long time not to know who you are. But you can know who you are and you can know who you belong to. That's grace. And that's the gift of God. He doesn't want you wondering. He wants you to know that you're saved, that you belong to him and that nothing can take you from his hands. Do you know this? Do you know this? It's not so much how it happens. It's that it happens. And so for some people, it's like walking into a dark room and a switch gets flipped and suddenly there's light and it's drastic and dramatic and, you know, disruptive. And for other people, it's kind of like, you know how when you go out on the beach in the morning or maybe you're out on the river and and you're just kind of watching as the sun comes up and it's getting lighter and lighter and lighter and then suddenly it's up and you never really saw when it happened. It can be like that for many people. In fact, I think it's like that often for people who've been raised in the church. When suddenly it's like, yeah, I really do believe all of this. It's not how, it's that. Has it happened in your life? And if so, then rest in it. 
and treasure it and rejoice in it and be delighted in it because God is delighted in you. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's freely given. That's grace. And that ought to comfort you on the days when you're mortified by your behavior. And it ought to encourage you on the days when you've actually lived in the way God's called you to live. That is really not your doing it. You're cooperating with what he's doing in you, with what he's doing in you. Here's something else we need to see. And this, I think, is really important because in a church like ours, where a lot of people are kind of grown up in the church or have come to faith or maybe have kind of heard it for a long time, we need to understand that salvation, conversion, belonging to God looks like something. And this, I think, is the place where many of us kind of get stuck. And I think where the church, and I use that term macro sense, gets a black eye in our culture. Because, you know, like... Surveys say that about one out of every three adults say they're born again. But I look at our culture and I go, that can't possibly be so. Because of all the children that need adopting and all, gosh, all the people getting killed all around us. And just, you know, the, you know, the way we treat the environment and ad nauseum, right? You know what I mean by ad nauseum? Like, it's, like you can't look at the news and go, yep, our country's a third Christian. No way. So, so salvation conversion looks like something and and we can see glimmers of it in Saul's life. And these things continue on. It's not just when you're saved, but it continues on in your life. First of all, you see in Saul who is becoming Paul, the conviction of his sin. You see that for three days and three nights, he doesn't eat a thing. And it's not because he thought, well, I'll fast now. No, 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 no. He's mourning. He's mourning what he has done. And he is mourning who he has been. And he is mourning the very sin that put Jesus on the cross. And while some people, I think, are convicted of sin on the front end and then come to faith, I think for many, the conviction of sin happens after they come to faith and is this evolving thing that you see happening throughout your life where you both get comfortable with who you are in Christ and you're also more and more mortified by the little things. Most people would go, ah, don't worry about it. You're like, no, 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 you don't understand what this costs the Lord. Do you have a conviction of sin? I mean, if you've ever been through the death of somebody that's really close to you, whom you love dearly, like, you know what, what it's like where you're mourning and you just don't even want to eat. That's what Saul's doing. He hasn't eaten or had anything to drink as he sits in the dark for those three days. He's mourning his sin before God. You know, years ago when I went down to be the rector of, of St. Christopher, we had all these young people high school students, college students, and they were great. But I started to to recognize something. Like these were mostly church kids, all of whom could say Jesus's name, but I didn't see them looking at all different from the world around. They looked exactly the same. If they were in a lineup with their peers and you just looked at what their lives looked like, they didn't look any different. There was nothing that made them stand out. And I realized, and and this was not a a condemnation of them. It was really God's grace and God's kindness. I realized these kids have never mourned their sin. They've been saying, I believe in God and Jesus their whole life. And they've never turned away from life, lived under their own steam. 
You see, because when you're convicted of your sin, when you're saved, you have to turn away from doing life your own way. And and they were still living under really what their parents had put on them, which was to be rich, to be successful, to have the life, whether or not God was part of it or not. Or what so many of us do, I think, and this is the tragedy of the church in America, is we fit Jesus into our lives when it's convenient and we invite him to be a tack on because, gosh, we don't want to go to hell, but we don't really let him be the Lord of our lives. And I remember taking those kids through the Ten Commandments and showing them in every single commandment the way in which they had broken the law of God. And then experiencing many of them actually mourning their sins and the salvation of their baptisms coming alive in them. And it started to affect everything around us. It made things really messy in all the best kind of ways. Have you mourned your sin? Because here's the thing. When you get stale in your Christian life, that's the place to go back to. Mourning your sin before the Lord so that he might relieve you of it and bring renewal to your heart. And so if you feel stuck, stuffy, dry, dead inside, come back to that place. And, And why not this week fast from social media? Start there. And take the time you would use like doom scrolling and invite the Holy Spirit to show you the things that have clouded the relationship, the things you're looking to for your righteousness outside of him, the ways in which you feel like you measure up in the culture, the ways in which you are looking to numb the pain, the ways in which you're looking to show the world around you that you really are okay, the ways in which you have forsaken the poor. The ways in which greed has gotten in. Do you know that in 20-something years of ordained ministry, I've had one person confess to me that they're greedy, and I've been living here for a very long time. Just let that sit for a little while. That's a gift for you for later. It may be God's salvation for you, to be quite honest. Not a word of condemnation but a word of salvation because it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance, that speaks the truth, that puts up a mirror, that shows us who we really are before him, not in order to squash us or cause us to go back into shame, but to free us so that we might be more available to him and his purpose in our life and in the world around us. William Barclay says the Christian is a man or woman who has ceased to do what he or she wants to do and who has begun to do what Christ wants him to do. So ask this question later. If you want A and God wants B, which do you choose? If you want A and God wants B, which one do you choose? I know what you're supposed to answer. But I want you to think about the way you really answer. That might be the place you need to mourn. A stubborn willfulness that hasn't yet been broken, saved but not under lordship. Oh, there's a lot more. I'm just going to focus on one more thing. There is a desperation that you see in Saul 
before God above other things. And this probably pulls out of where we were. And, and you see it when it says, when Ananias comes and he lays hands upon Saul and he prays for the healing of his sight and for the infilling, the power of the Holy Spirit to come in. When that happens, Saul, who's been three days in the dark, who hasn't eaten or had a sip of water in his conviction and his mourning. Now think about that. Have you ever been three days and three nights without a sip of water or food? Like we can barely go three hours. Now think about the condition that he's in. He's in a hot culture. They don't have air conditioning. So, so imagine what your body would feel like in that place. The first thing he does when the Holy Spirit comes in and when he has his sight back is it says, and he was baptized. And then he goes and he gets food to be strengthened in his body. How hungry are you finding yourself for God? How how thirsty are you for the Lord? Are you more hungry for Jesus than you are for food? Are you more desperate to know God? than you are for the comforts of this life. This, I think, is one of the places where we all have, and and I speak for me, this is not me pointing a finger at you, one of the places where in our culture, one of our primary cultural idols is our comfort over our desperation for God, which is why when you go to third world countries, they generally have it a lot better than we do. And I don't mean materially. They have Jesus in ways we don't because we're not really that hungry and we're not really that desperate for the Lord. There's a story and I'll wrap up with this, a story that's told about an old preacher. And there's a young man who came to him and the young man was kind of flippant. There'd there'd been these sort of open air revival type meetings and and this young man was standing on the sidelines, kind of watching. And when it was all over, they're down by this river. He comes to the old preacher and he says, well, preacher, I heard what you had to say. And I think I might want this Jesus of yours. And the preacher looked at him and said, really, you want Jesus? And he said, yeah, I think so. And the preacher said, okay, well, we'll come with me. And he took the young man out into the water and he grabbed him and he put him down under the water and he just held him there. And when the man, this young guy starts twitching a little bit, he pulls him up and he says, what is it you want? And the young guy says, Jesus. And he put him back down under the water and he held him there. And I mean, he held him there a really long time and he pulled him up and he said, what is it you want? I want air. When you want Jesus the same way you want air, then you'll have Jesus. How much do you want him? If you feel that little twinge inside that goes, yes, don't go to condemnation. I haven't done enough. Go to grace and say, Lord, this is from you. So would you satisfy the hunger inside of me? Would you teach me how to be desperately thirsty for you? I will mourn my sin. I will turn from the things that I have looked to for my comfort and my rightness before other people. I only want you. That's the heart that receives from God. That's what we see in Paul. This is good news, but not everybody wants it. It's free for all because the cost has been paid. But the cost, of course, to us is often our comfort. Let's pray.
Lord, anybody can be saved and can be used for your purpose in the world. Let it be me. Let it be me, Lord. Let it be us. Let it be this church. Let it be Holy Cross. As you do this work in us, Lord, then show us how you want us to be your people in the world. How you want us to lead others to know you, like Paul did with the rest of his life. How you want us to love people who are hard to love. Lord, make us like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.